Hello and welcome to the Serverless Transformation Podcast, a podcast dedicated to all things serverless. In this episode, we have the audio version of today's Serverless Transformation panel discussion, where three AWS serverless heroes discuss the topic of how can serverless improve? Jeremy Daly, Erica Windisch, and Ran Ribbonsav discussed a range of topics and then it evolved into a more dynamic Q&A session. Please enjoy the audio and if you'd like the video, it's on our YouTube channel. Thank you and enjoy. Like to introduce yourself, Ron? Yes, definitely. So I'm Ron Ribbonsaft. I'm the co-founder and CTO at Epsagon. Uh, I'm also an AWS Serverless Zero, which means that I would love to help you all at any time to, you know, go as fast as possible with serverless. Uh, in a few words, at Epsagon, we're doing distributed tracing and monitoring for any kind of modern applications, varying from serverless to microservices and container-based. Uh, so if at any point you're at a hiccup or just don't know what's going on in your zoo of application, that's that's the right timing to uh, figure out such a solution. Awesome, thanks, Ram. And next, Erica, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, sure, uh, Erica uh, Windish, I'm CTO and founder of IOPipe. Um, I'm also an AWS uh, community uh, hero, a serverless hero in particular. Um, I, so my company, IOPipe, um, is, you know, kind of, kind of repeat everything Epsigon just said, I guess. Um, we've been doing this, um, you know, same sort of thing, um, a little bit longer since 2016, um, providing tools for developers to understand what their applications are doing in production. Um, this, what we call whole observability that, you know, really correlates uh, all of your data together and helps you dive into uh, problems both, you know, at the application layer, things like, you know, whether or not, you know, a particular order went through and for who that order was uh, for, um, and then tying that to the infrastructure uh, information as well. Amazing. Thank you, Erica. And finally, Jeremy, do you want to give a quick introduction on yourself? Yes. Uh, so I'm Jeremy Daly. I am also an AWS serverless hero. Uh, I'm a CTO at a company, a company called AlertMe. We do not sell anything serverless to people. Um, we just use serverless. Um, but uh, I have been uh, using AWS since 2009, uh, early 2015, when Lambda became GA and then API Gateway came out later that year, uh, started moving most of my workloads to serverless, and now I'm a very serverless first kind of person. Uh, I also have a newsletter off, uh, called Off by None that you can sign up for, offbynone.io. Goes out every Tuesday. It's all about what's happening in the serverless space. Um, all kinds of tutorials, articles, uh, news, things like that. Uh, and then I also host the Serverless Chats podcast, uh, serverlesschats.com, that you can go and listen to me talk to people like the great guests we have on today um, and uh, just talk about serverless and, um, you know, really dive deep into a particular subject. Awesome. Jeremy's newsletter is probably by far the best newsletter out there for serverless. So if, if anyone that's listening is Thank a you. newcomer to serverless and want to, you know, be on top of everything new that is being released or features or posts or Twitter stuff, that's, that's a one-stop shop. Yeah, I definitely Appreciate agree. That. Appreciate that. Thanks. Awesome. Yes, yeah, so let's jump in. So the first question will be, there are several advantages to serverless from cost to scalability, speed of delivery, uh, reduction in ops, and potentially greener architectures. Jeremy, what's the main advantage for you and why? Uh, it's hard to pick just one. Um, you know, so part of the reason why I started moving to serverless uh, a while ago was uh, I was working for a startup that had um, basically a few people that just managed the AWS infrastructure. Uh, and we had everything from CICD pipelines with Jenkins doing some of the builds to using DynamoDB actually for, for some of the things. But every time we had to launch a new um, uh, update to the system, the entire thing had to go down. We had a whole series of servers that were connected to load balancers. Um, and this was 2000 and maybe 13, 2014. Um, you know, so we were disconnecting. Every host had to be disconnected from the load balancer. The the software updated and reconnected. This was before a lot of the automation and some of the other stuff um, was kind of available. So those that sort of maintenance. I mean, I spent most of my time. I was the uh, the CTO there for a while, and before that, I was a VP of product. Uh, and I spent most of my time just dealing with engineers trying to keep the infrastructure running. Uh, and it was it was frustrating because one, it cost a lot of money. Two, it was 
know, whatever you're paying to host your site sometimes or host your application sometimes pales in comparison to what you pay developers and engineers to try to keep these things up and running. Um, and so we always had this thing where it's like, especially as somebody who was working on product at the time, uh, you know, we want to do some new feature. Well, okay, this new feature requires XYZ, plus there's some infrastructure that maybe needs to change changes to the database and how do you roll out changes to the database and some of these other things. So there were just a lot of challenges that we faced sort of working in that, you know, existing sort of, uh, you know, or the, the way that people were building applications. Um, so when serverless came along or uh, Lambda in particular, we were able to start looking at these little bits of the system that we said, there's no reason why this has to be running on the same servers that are running, you know, all these other processes that we're running. Um, and those were things like, again, email, uh, you know, emails that would get sent out, automated emails, things like that, that, uh, or even some, um, some of our ETL pipelines had, um, uh, were quite intertwined uh, on, on, uh, as part of the system because of the way the databases overlapped and some of those things. So, this idea of being able to take a small snippet, some sort of small discrete piece of business logic uh, and execute that independently and at whatever scale we wanted to um, was, was really, attracted to, uh, really attractive to us. So we started breaking off little pieces and started doing that. And then um, we started realizing, hey, we could probably build an entire application around this. So we did start to go down that path, um, the startup had some changes and things like that. So we never, never quite got the whole thing where it needed to be. Um, but the, the process for us was just this advantage of not only reducing the costs, not only not having to worry about the scalability, because we have a great scalability story about the, the startup being on um, Good Morning America, featured on Good Morning America, and just the whole thing crashing when we had tens of thousands of people hitting it, um, mainly because of a weakness in, in the, uh, with, with the database. But that's a different story. But, but those sort of things you know, that you have to worry about, it's just crazy to think um, with, with the flexibility of the cloud and, and what it provides you um, for us to be worrying as developers to say, hey, I want to create some sign-up form or I want to create some, you know, some application that does X, Y, Z. Um, why am I now worrying about load balancing and uh, you know, server updates and all these other things that just seem like the cloud is built to do for me? Um, you know, so while containers and, you know, and even VMs are still part of many people's infrastructure and, and obviously you've got legacy systems that, 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 you know, need that sort of, that sort of capability, the new things that we're building now, this idea of worrying about what is happening behind the scenes, um, is, seems a little bit crazy to me now having done serverless for the last probably four years or so. Um, you know, so to go back to sort of the the question about what are the advantages? I mean, it's, it's kind of everything, right? It just reduces that operational um, complexity or the, the need for operations. Um, it, it's faster to develop. We can develop something small and have it up and running without having to worry about all of the other interconnectedness that has to go along with that to make sure that that can get into a monolith application uh, or even a microservice for that matter. Uh, you know, and again, the, you know, there's, there's a thing here about maybe it being greener. I think at some point in the, in the future, um, you know, there, there will be an aspect to it that will, that will reduce the amount of servers that need to run. Um, I don't think we're there yet, but, um, but yeah, I mean, cost, scalability, speed of delivery, all those things are, are, you know, probably all equally, uh, uh important in my mind. Great. Uh, Ran, Erica, anything you'd like to add on to that? I, yeah, I like to add on. Um, I mean, I, I think that uh, Jeremy hit on a lot of really important points. Uh, and, and for me, the first thing that brought me to serverless was the ability to kind of scale down, right? So the ability to build these like, you know, applications that are maybe important, but, you know, the infrastructure requirements of those applications were maybe overwhelming for what they were delivering um, and might have prevented me from ship, you know, building and shipping it, or at least from confidently delivering it into prod at my company where I would say like, you know, oh, you know, like this is not, you know, let's say, you know, a core competency. This is not something that we want to staff, you know, three, four engineers on managing, but totally something we would love to build and, you know, serverless enables to, to build those sorts of things. Um, you know, these small scale applications that have minimal operational requirements that literally just wouldn't get built otherwise because they're almost too small to be um, managed appropriately. Um, the other thing is, and I think this is actually kind of related, um, uh, but it, it seemed like, Jeremy, you didn't really get into it as much, was the security aspect. Yes. Because every uh, function that you deploy 
um, you know, it is isolated into its own environment. And um, every invocation of that function, so every HTTP request runs in a sandbox, right? And this is like the kind of security model, right, and like least privilege um, you know, like some of the things you mentioned, Jeremy, like not running on the same server as it does the mail or these or these other cron jobs, right? There is a security footprint there, which, you know, like you now have this additional isolation that you didn't have by moving to an architecture that forces everything to be very distinct and discreet and sandboxed. Yeah, and actually just to add on too, on top of the security thing, um, as well as also the billing isolation too. I mean, so, so for some people, it, it's, uh, you know, you're running a large series of servers that maybe have to do a number of different things. Um, the amount of compute power that each individual processy uh, needs uh, or process needs is sort of, um, you know, it's a black box. You're not really sure what it's using. So that ability to be very, um, you know, very particular or get fine grained on the billing aspect of things, um, you know, just as an interesting way to say, is this particular process that we're running costing us a lot of money? How does that factor into what we're charging our customers and so forth? Uh, and being able to look at those numbers, you know, again, not to, you know, not to meter certain things, but just it, it is a really interesting way to look at things to, to understand your costs. I definitely think serverless can bubble up things that like when you move into the serverless and you realize, oh, these are actually much more expensive than I thought they would be mm. and might even be worth, you know, removing or refactoring, rebuilding. Um, and it's not more expensive because it's serverless. It's more expensive because it was just an expensive app to run <laughs> and you just didn't have transparency into it. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. No, it's definitely an interesting angle around the transparency and also the total cost of ownership seems to be a recurring theme through this. Ran, was there anything you wanted to add on top of that? Uh, they already took all the greatest answers, but uh, <laughs> for me personally, I mean, for the team, it's the speed of development, speed of deployment. It just, it reduces a lot of hassles in going from zero to production. Yeah, I, I agree, definitely. Do you reckon there's a, an initial cost phase to that? So if you're a company not not familiar with serverless there's a big time investment to upskill on that yeah you would probably get a lot of uh, things wrong at first uh, because with serverless it's so easy to get started but you're probably not doing the best uh, kind of things at first so you'll you'll learn along the way and that's okay i mean if, if somebody hears us so uh, like try to figure out what's the best thing from others experience and then start to implement but i know it's just you know, you probably want to go to uh, something working first. So it's also good. I agree. Definitely. Yeah. Awesome. So if we move on to the next question, um, there are a lot of emerging tools for infrastructure as code for service architectures, like the serverless framework, like AWS SAM, like many others. Uh, what would you choose for a large scale greenfield project and why Erica, what are your thoughts on this? Um, so, we actually started um, at IOPipe, we started using um, APAC. Um, that was back in 2016, and we actually generally liked it. Um, we ended up moving everything over to the serverless framework, and um, I think we've been generally happy with it. I would say um, I'm not sure that it is exactly I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's my dream framework. Um, I think there are things that I would like to have and, and it doesn't have um, that are maybe more fundamental than just some feature requests. But um, that said, I think it's the best tool out there right now. Um, and we're fairly, we're, we're, we're definitely not unhappy enough with it to, you know, really seek a replacement this time. That all makes sense. Um, what, are the, what are the things that aren't features that you think it's missing? if they're easy to describe. So I, I, so one of the things that became pretty ambiguous with like things like Chef and Puppet, um, you know, even solutions that came before that after them is, you know, um, you know a, mat a matter of orchestration and management across multiple applications, multiple microservices, um, you know, in those cases, multiple servers, um, right? You know, maybe the, ser the server aspect doesn't apply here, uh, you know, what happens is, you know, the service framework becomes very distributed. If you are not using a monorepo, you, you, you find yourself, um, you know, shipping a serverless config for every project. Um, and if you have, you know, interdependencies, let's say two different projects depend on a single S3 bucket. Well, you know, where does the 
where do, the, where do the rules for creating that S3 bucket live, right? Does that become a separate CloudFormation resource? Does that become a, um, a serverless YAML where you, like, you know, where does your CloudFormation in your serverless uh, YAML intersect, right? Do you embed all, for your entire company or, or your entire project, do you embed all of your AWS resources in the CloudFormation, embed it in serverless YAML files, or do you use uh, CloudFormation files and serverless uh, framework files? Um, how do these files interact when, like, again, you have, like, an S3 bucket that's shared or a DynamoDB um, database that's shared between two different, um, you know, applications, right? But these applications might be a function. Like, if you have two functions and you live in two different repos, you suddenly have, like, an explosion of um, complexity, I think, in just managing these resources living in all these different places. And there's a really, it's really hard to know, like, okay, like, which GitHub repo deployed this function? Um, which, where is the source of truth for, say, this S3 bucket? Um, okay, you know, you can see it came from a confirmation stack. Where did that confirmation stack come from, right? Where does that link back to my GitHub sources? Things like that. These are, these are things I would definitely love to have answers to. Um, I don't know, like, these, these, are more than fun, these are more than feature requests, though, for the serverless framework, right? Like, these are more fundamental problems um, that maybe it can be something they can solve as part of their, like, larger platform play, or maybe this is a new tool that we're, we're waiting for. Oh, definitely. Um, we've had the same thing on our project. So we're doing the have a separate CloudFormation, separate serverless YAML, and keeping the versioning between those consistent and knowing which one someone's deployed and figuring out what's gone wrong and rolling back can become quite complex. Sorry, Rand, did you want to jump in on that? Yeah, actually, yeah. We're seeing, I think, the popular ones that we're seeing amongst ourselves and the customers that uh, we're working with. So SAM and serverless are probably uh, the leading one. Personally, I love serverless because it allows a plugin ecosystem. It means that I think that serverless is strong because people commit, uh, you know, plugins and extra features that are just can't be built within it uh, with a you know single team or two teams. Uh, the other one is SAM. Uh, if you're just using AWS solely, I mean, the benefit of serverless YAML is that you can deploy it uh, hopefully for uh, Google, AWS, Azure, and different cloud vendors that provide serverless offerings. If you do, however, just concentrate on AWS, so SAM is also a good alternative, uh, mainly because it's, uh, it's up to date with what AWS has to offer. So there's never like the inconsistencies of what you can do with the YAML and what you can do on actually on AWS. So that's also a good solution. And there are tons of different uh, frameworks there. One that uh, Jeremy is responsible for uh, you can probably speak to it that if you're looking for a more tailored uh, experience for a more tailored uh, scenario uh, you might consider using this because it's easier to accomplish them using a specific uh, tool sure and on the comparison between sam and serverless would you say the key advantage is just being up to date or are there any other advantages the the benefit for serverless yaml is the uh, plugins ecosystem uh, you see tons of plugins and that's the most powerful thing. Uh, for Sam, it's mostly like AWS related. So if you know that you're already working on AWS, there is a big reason to keep your whole ecosystem within AWS and not externally. Uh, that's roughly how, uh, how I would compare these two. Sure. And I've also heard a security argument between the two as well. Because a serverless framework is open source with lots of plugins, you don't necessarily know all the codes coming from that's running your production infrastructure. Yeah. Come across definitely. a concern from anyone before, or is that? Uh, sorry, sorry, have you come across that concern yourself? I haven't heard it, but you know, usually on big enterprises, they prefer to have all their solutions in a single suite. So even, you know, code management, they would prefer to go with what AWS offers rather than do like GitHub or GitLab or any other thing. Uh, any kind of database management, uh, you know, services like Elastic or Redis, you would prefer to do that on AWS rather than the external one. It just gives a better experience that everything is in the same place. Definitely privacy and regulation wise that, you know, AWS is certified with everything that any enterprise needs to know. So it makes it much more easier on the uh, like, both procurement and legal and security stuff. Sure. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've seen the same. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, just to, uh, to touch on the security aspect of it too, I mean, the, 
um, you know, the, the, the NPM problem, right, with um, security uh, is, is an entire conversation uh, in and of itself. So, I mean, I, I think there is, as you get to larger organizations, you start using third-party packages, you do have to be uh, conscious of that, and you do need to be locking versions to make sure that, you know, that bad code doesn't leak in. But um, the interesting thing, I think, about these frameworks in general uh, is sort of the approach that they take to modifying cloud resources, too. So, uh, Sam takes all of, uh, you know, basically Sam is a, is a subset, um, or I guess a superset of, uh, of CloudFormation. So uh, that basically compiles it down into CloudFormation and then uses CloudFormation for the deployment. The serverless framework um, right now for AWS uses CloudFormation to do the deployments. Um, plus a lot of the plugins use the APIs to get around sometimes limitations that, that you'll see in CloudFormation. Um, Begin or the architect framework, they started using API based and then they moved to CloudFormation. But now Serverless Inc. with their new components are moving back to API-based, right? So um, how they're manipulating these cloud resources is essentially what they're doing is they're creating um, different levels of abstraction for how you manage these cloud resources. And even CDK, for example, uh, is very similar. CDK will go ahead and take that and compile it down into CloudFormation, um, which then is used to actually manipulate the cloud resources. Um, so I think that's an interesting aspect of it. But um, going back sort of a little bit what you were saying, Erica, uh, around maybe, maybe the right word is, or the right uh, concept here is service discovery, right? As you're deploying multiple stacks uh, and you have functions that need to talk to different resources, maybe shared resources, um, it's really tough because with serverless, what I try to do is I try to build microservices that are dependent only on services that that microservice needs, right? So if service A has to talk to service B, um, they, they wouldn't share an S3 bucket, they wouldn't share a Dynamo uh, DB table. Um, although that's hard, right? Because it's sometimes really easy when you have access to just say, hey, I need to grab this data from here. But to do it right, because maybe those, uh, those microservices end up on different accounts at some point, maybe they end up uh, in different regions, um, maybe they're duplicated in multiple regions, um, you know, you, you have to figure out how are those, how is service A going to talk to service B um, if it's something that it needs synchronously. So, you know, does it use Lambda's internal invoke command and, and grab data that way? Do you set up a separate API that it can hit up against and do that? Um, do you do things like event bridge and send a request one way and then hope that it'll eventually get data back? Um, you know, so there's, there's a number of different ways uh, and challenges that, that you deal with that, but um, the, the frameworks that you use, I think those aren't necessarily, they're all great, right? They all have different approaches, different ways that you do stuff, and they're all great for what they do. But certainly, as Erica was saying, that there's, there's a larger problem around how serverless applications should be structured, how they should be organized, how they should share resources, where those resources should be attached to. If you're publishing a series of functions that need to talk to a DynamoDB table, does that DynamoDB table live in that serverless.yaml file or, or that template.yaml file? Um, or do you keep that separate and then the versioning of that becomes a nightmare? So, so yeah, I, I don't think there's a clear cut solution uh, right now other than you know, people just having to be really conscious about what they're doing and, uh, uh, and, and, and oftentimes coming up with their own versioning schema just to, to make sure that everything stays in sync. Yeah, um, I also wanna add, um, well, it, so actually before I change topics a little bit, um, I, I guess something somebody could try and do um, is, you know, run it through, uh, you know, Terraform with Sam. Um, I guess that's mm -hmm. something that one could try and do to solve that problem. Um, I haven't tried to do that. Um, and I don't really know anybody doing it. Um, I, I've definitely heard stories of people trying. Um, so something uh, about what Rand was saying um, about licensing is interesting because, um, I recently just did an audit um, of the serverless uh, framework um, in terms of licensing, and this was actually a bit of a problem. Um, we found that um, a bunch of, well, I mean, obviously, like Sam doesn't really have dependencies, right? And that's like a, a huge advantage. Um, the serverless framework, uh, the serverless team seems to have been pretty lacks on you know their concerns for licensing and I think that's something they have to resolve um, you know for instance um, I believe the examples repo is 
uh, built in as a dependency somewhere. Uh, but the examples repo includes a bunch of code that's licensed under a number of licenses um, that are all not actually really, you know, good for enterprise licenses um, that people can get kind of upset about, <laughs> as it turns out. Um, so, um, you know, something to be mindful of is that, you know, the serverless team could probably do a little bit more work on making sure that the licenses of all of their dependencies um, or all of the code in the repos related to their dependencies, um, whether that code is imported and used, you know, in the project or not, it is in those repos. Um, and so there is a number of licensing kind of gotchas that if you're an enterprise and you run it through your security or legal teams, um, they might come back with some frustrations around like code that is literally not licensed or is un, you know, with unusual licenses, um, et cetera. <laughs> um, we also have somebody in the chat mentioning um, altering the ZSH, uh, ZSH config, which I don't know anything about that, but apparently <laughs> it may do that. Yeah, I'm sorry, Peter. I'm not sure the relevance of ZSH uh, to the framework chat. Ran or Jeremy, do you know what the relevance would be? I think you meant for Zshell, if uh, I got it correctly, but I'm not sure about the question. Okay, well, Peter, if you want to add a little bit more context, we can try to get back to it. Uh, awesome. If we move on to the next question, um, so serverless is often confused or conflated with functions as a service. So, uh, for example, AWS Lambda. Why do you think this is, and how can we improve the understanding of serverless architectures? Ran, would you like to give us a first answer on that? Actually, yeah, really, it's one of my favorite questions because I think up to maybe a couple of years ago, uh, when people said serverless, they were referring to AWS Lambda or, you know, even function as a service uh, at some point. Um, and I think it's, it's completely changing or at least changed for at least at some people's minds. Uh, the thing was simple, you know, AWS Lambda was the, or function as a service became the complete domination of serverless in our minds. Uh, and that was okay because it was pretty new and pretty evolving and everybody talked about it. Over time, people understood that, you know, Lambda function or functions in general are not the only thing that composes our applications. Today, I think that people are more aware to, that you got a full application that you can say that it's serverless because you're using serverless like resources and services. Uh, for example, if I'm, you know, saying in the AWS language, messaging services that are fully managed, fully uh, owned by somebody else and you just use them as part of your applications. Uh, databases that are fully managed, uh, step functions, uh, things like storage, like S3 buckets, all of this ecosystem provides you with, you know, ready to go set of services that you can call serverless. Uh, honestly, like personally, I talk about serverless as a spectrum where you have the uh, far left part where things that you manage on your own, this is completely not serverless. This is like zero score for serverless. And on the far edge right, things that are super serverless, superly that you don't care about the host or the infrastructure or things that are should be obsolete in a modern kind of applications. You can find Lambda functions and SNS and S3 buckets and API gateway. And, you know, I can keep the list going on and on that are like fully serverless uh, as we can think about it. I think that you're leveraging a fully serverless ecosystem for your application that's where you're getting the full benefit of doing serverless it's not just a lambda function if you're just doing lambda function and the rest of your services are your own managed uh, redis and your own managed rd like postgres database and your own managed elastic you're not benefiting the serverless ecosystem completely and i think it's just a thing that will take a bit of time for many more people to understand and grasp it just you know serverless is fairly new uh, for all of us and it just you know, starting to getting penetrated to uh, every engineer and every ops teams out there in the world. Sure, definitely. Um, Ran, uh, sorry, Jeremy, Erica, anything you'd like to add on to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I have a I have a pretty unpopular opinion, I think, about um, what is serverless and what isn't serverless. Um, so I, I don't consider managed services or even Lambda to be serverless themselves. Um, and this is because there are clearly 
operational requirements for the people that are maintaining those services. Um, so I believe if you're building a serverless application, the point is you're using as many of these managed services for you um, in order to reduce your server management um, or, or the, the need for you to worry about some of these things. But, um, you know, there's all kinds of things, spectrums and ladders and, and um, uh, you know, cloud 2.0 and all these other ways that people describe, um, uh, they, they describe serverless. And I think that's fine. I mean, the term is way overused and it's at this point, it, it's, it's hard to kind of nail anything down. But, um, you know, so Lambda itself, if you're using Lambda to run some snippet of code, um, then yeah, if you want to say I'm running a serverless application, I'm, I'm, I'm building something in a way in which I'm not worrying about the underlying servers and I, and I don't have to deal with the complexity of managing that. Um, you, you plug that into DynamoDB and API Gateway. Yeah, those services are fully managed. You don't have to worry at all about those. So yes, that's a nice serverless application. Now ask, add something like Redis in, right? Add Redis into your serverless application. That's perfectly fine because Redis actually is probably the better, you know, uh, sub millisecond or microsecond cache that we have available to us. Um, I'd rather use that for certain jobs than DynamoDB, but I'm still building a serverless application. I'm not managing those servers under the hood. Yes, I still have to choose instance size and some of that, but trying to conflate this thing of like what exactly is a serverless application or isn't, I think the approach is just, or the, for me, it's this idea of, uh, of the mindset, the methodology behind it. It's saying, I'm starting to build an application where I'm not, or I'm reducing my, my worry on the underlying platform and the management of that as much as I possibly can and letting this elastic cloud do that for me. Um, we are not there yet. You can't really build fully serverless applications um, if you wanna you know, think of it as the zero maintenance type thing. Um, I mean, you can if you use API Gateway and Lambda and, and DynamoDB, then yes, maybe it's a fully serverless, but to build full-on applications that need things like Elasticsearch and need things like Redis or um, you know, may, maybe need some larger ETL jobs or, or machine learning, some of these other things that we still need to use traditional servers or containers to do, I still think those fit in just fine. Or RDS, for example, um, serverless Aurora is not serverless you know, in terms of the, and that's the wrong way to say it, but it, there's still, you know, it's still, uh, there's, there's still some management underneath there that you have to do some things you have to think about. So for me, um, it's very close and you can throw RDS into your, into your serverless application or, or uh, RDBMS into your serverless application. It's just a matter of you understanding how to deal with that um, and, and relying on the cloud as much as you possibly can to manage the complexity, manage the scaling, manage that elasticity for you um, and, and to remove yourself from that. But, um, you know, again, the original question is fast, you know, the, the understanding or, you know, getting conflated. I don't think any service individually that supports a serverless application is serverless in and of itself. I think the idea is that you basically you're building applications that are leveraging the power of the cloud, um, you know, and, and any degree of that, whether you want to put it on a spectrum or, or some other, you know, some other scale to say how serverless you are, to me really doesn't matter. The more people move towards that, the better. Um, and then maybe someday we'll have serverless Redis and serverless Elasticsearch and some of these other things where we don't have to worry about the servers and choosing instance sizes and things like that. But anyways, I, I, that's a, it's a, a differing opinion, I think, than many of, my, than many of the, the people in the serverless community. I, you know, I, I think there's a really good case to say that, you know, serverless doesn't have to be all or nothing. Um, you know, you could theoretically build an application that is at least partially serverless without using Lambda. Um, you yeah. could build, you know, uh, things around AWS recognition and Kinesis and even serverless Aurora or um what any of these services that may or may not be serverless, um, you, you could definitely build around these with an application that you ship and run on Elastic Beanstalk. Mm -hmm. um, so, or, you know, or under Kubernetes. Um, so I, I don't think that fast necessarily has to be a requirement for, um, you know, for doing serverless, but it, you know, I would say fast is, you know, the de facto serverless compute. So if you're doing the compute side of things, uh, serverless, that would tend to end up on Lambda. Um, and I think that there's definitely a strong focus, um, at least has traditionally been a focus on, you know, the compute being serverless. Yeah. Um, but, you know, just to take this a little bit step, a step further, like, 
I was drawn to serverless in the first place because, um, and Lambda in the first place, because I saw the idea that you're just running this little block of code, implying that if we could put a, Java, a JavaScript interpreter anywhere, we can run our JavaScript anywhere, and it doesn't have to be Lambda. It could be any service um, anywhere, and it, that doesn't just mean the big clouds. It means you know a, a distributed compute running um, as part of you know like a dis, you know a global distributed system, right? It could be you know obviously like you know large providers, but also you know your independent providers, right? Something like what if we had something like Tor, but for you know distributed compute that you could pay people in bitcoins to run things on servers running in their closets. Um, you know, that was the kind of thing that was like really like, you know, this big kind of shift that I've kind of been waiting for. Uh, I don't know if it's ever, ever going to happen in our industry, but that's the kind of like serverless that is kind of really enticing to me because it's not just serverless, right? It's providerless. It's, um, you know, disconnecting us from, you know, our overlords of all of the big clouds, right? And allowing us to, um, you know, own our infrastructure in maybe a more open source way um, than, you know, relying strictly on providers. And obviously the enterprises are always going to pick these big providers, right? And, and but that's not necessarily um, what I'm arguing, right? Is that enterprises should be running their things on people's servers and people's basements. Um, but the idea that like serverless provides us a bridge to running compute anywhere um, and also simplifying that development model. Like a Lambda is not significantly different than a kernel for um, a CUDA application, right? Um, this concept of, you know, development simplifying and the, the unit of deployment being a function, like can, you know, can be spread to all applications and all sorts of things, right? From IoT to, um, you know, children's toys to, um, you know, uh, running on the edge, right? With, you know, Cloudflare workers and Cloudflare and Edge. I, I just, I, I think that this idea of function as a service or, or function as a unit of deployment is a really big transformation um, that, that might be separate than the rest of the serverless, um, you know, uh, you know, the, I guess the serverless rocket ship, right? It, it, it might be a slightly different thing. Um, I think it's also a good thing, but I think we're also, like, I don't see fast really evolving. I see serverless evolving more than I see fast evolving, which is kind of unfortunate. Like, I want fast to evolve more. Right. Yeah, and actually, just to, to, to dovetail on that point, I mean, um, fast was the glue that came and started connecting a lot of these different services. And we had DynamoDB, um, you know, we had uh, SQS, we had S3, we had a lot of these services that, you know, people would consider serverless. Um, but, uh, but in order to connect them, you still needed to run that code somewhere. And so Lambda comes along and now you're starting to connect these services without needing servers to run it. But then the next evolution of that has been, uh, you know, someone like AWS and, and, and Azure and, and, and those teams looking at what people are doing and saying, okay, well, I want to take um, information through API Gateway and get it into DynamoDB, or I want to take information from API Gateway and get it into um, an SQSQ or, or Kinesis. And so they're saying, well, you run that through Lambda and then you transform it and then you put it in there. And then they're like, well, wait a minute, we don't even have to do that anymore. So why don't we just go straight from API Gateway into Kinesis or straight from API Gateway into you know, DynamoDB? And well, what about security? Okay, well, let's add custom authorizers and things like that. So you're getting away from some of this glue um, the interconnectivity of these services now being part of the services themselves and not necessarily needing Lambda for that. So I think Lambda, as Erica said, is a big transformation. It was a huge shift because it gave us somewhere to run these discrete pieces of business logic. Um, but now there's this next evolution that is services talking to services without there being any compute in between there. Um, and actually Ben uh, Kehoe has a really interesting point on this where he's talking about the data, the, the compute happening on the data side as opposed to um, using you know, using data and then computing something on and then sending it off somewhere else that if that compute can happen when the data is written or when the data is read um, at that level you know then then there's a there's an argument to get rid of a lot of the the function processing that we need now so anyways interesting point so it sounds like we all agree that serverless is not just fast um, and it's obviously a big space for it to move into 
Um, we have one last question to go on to, and then we can have some Q and A's coming through. Uh, we see one's already come through from Craig, who actually I think was a previous speaker on this panel. Um, and if anyone wants to send any others through while we go through this last question, uh, feel free. So the final question uh, that's prepared is, um, we all uh, agree that service is a great way to work, um, but if you're a small startup, is the overhead and lack of best practices and tooling too much of a risk for you? So we saw this with maybe microservices, a lot of small companies trying to adopt a microservice architecture and then realizing they didn't really know how to. Do you think a similar thing is happening with serverless and are there ways people can mitigate this? Um, is there anyone in particular who'd like to jump on and answer this? Maybe I can start uh, with sure. first words. I don't think it's a risk, especially for startups. I think for startups, it's a risk to uh, work on anything that is not focused to their what their kind of offering is doing. Any minute that they're spending not on their business value or their like their prom promised uh, thing is is a waste of time. And serverless, although that you might waste some time in the beginning on doing mistakes, it still is much faster than doing things better, but on a different kind of architecture that consumes much more uh, time from your team to uh, re-architect and re-engineer at a good practices. I mean, building software right, it's, it's hard almost in any scenario. Serverless might be a bit harder today because it doesn't have yet all of the best practices and not everyone knows about it. I think that the best practice for serverless is to learn from other people rather than just jump and do stuff. Uh, and today I think the tooling is pretty much mature. I mean, you know, two or maybe three years ago, you didn't have like deployment and monitoring and logging and things like that. But today you can see, you know, at any space, at least two or three different tools that are leading. Uh, so getting started today with serverless, especially for a startup, it's, I think it's a mandatory. The other way around would be a bit of a risk uh, to go to today. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd say the same thing. I'd say risk compared to what? Uh, in 2009, uh, when, when I started moving to AWS, the, the uh, uh, startup that I was working on at the time, we had to build out a uh, sharded MySQL database cluster. We had to build out um, load balance wow. servers in order to do um, in order to do uh, serving up of the of the application layer, we had a separate we had a separate set of servers that were communicating via Gearman. So we were kind of doing like a uh, sort of a an early phase microservice type thing where we were essentially um, you know coordinating with front end servers that connected to back end servers that then you know did all this other stuff. That's that took us six months just to build the architecture out, right? Never mind all the code and all this other stuff that had to happen. Um, and I've been meaning to do this at some point, but honestly, the uh, not to give the, you know, the, the fairy tale story of, oh, I could have built it in two weeks with serverless, um, but that piece of it, right? That infrastructure, that how are we going to scale the database? How are we gonna store this information? How are we gonna communicate between these services and do some of this other stuff? How are we gonna host it and make sure that it's gonna scale infinitely? All this kind of stuff. Um, those answers, those answers are, 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 or those problems are solved right now. Um, you know, for the most part, other than some edge cases, um, you know, hosting a site with massive compute and high-scale databases and interconnected microservices with EventBridge or SNS or any of those things, those those are solved now, right? So that six months of designing and building that architecture probably goes down to maybe two weeks to you know three weeks of figuring out what the right services are to use. You still have to build all that application code, and that's still going to take you time to do it. But um, the the interesting thing is, what's a bigger risk going down like the Kubernetes route and 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 having your team spend you know three months, four months, five months building that, or just containers in general, or VMs or something, um, and then realizing that a certain part of it doesn't scale, or you know you have to re-engineer a certain part of it um, with with functions as a service, with with DynamoDB, with with API Gateway you can have something up and running an endpoint up and running in minutes um, that you can start testing and start iterating on and throw your static site up on S3 and you never have to worry about uh, that server going down unless there's a you know, distributed denial of service attack uh, on, uh, on, um, on Route 53. But other than that, um, you, know, you should be pretty good. Uh, so that's the kind of thing where the risk to me is trying to build out the infrastructure to support some idea that is untested test the idea and you can always go backwards. You can always say, hey, this serverless thing, it's responding in you know, uh, 65 milliseconds and we need to get it down to 10 milliseconds. So great, 
prove the idea, prove that that needs to happen, prove that you're going to have the usage on that. And then if you want to go and set up a series of containers or something else in order to get that latency down, um, you know, make the choice at that point, but certainly don't start the other way around. Um, you know, and again, so I just think the risk is wasting all that time trying to build out an architecture without proving out your idea, like Rand said. Um, so I, I kind of want to con just concur. Um, yeah, you know, if you're building a startup, um, your biggest risk is going out of business, right? Uh, it's running out of money, it's failing, um, not delivering, not shipping, um, you know, uh, or, 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 or building, building too late, uh, whatever, whatever it is, right? But ultimately, it's going to come down to money. And serverless is going to be cheaper. Um, it's going to be cheaper because you're going to do things faster. It's going to be cheaper because it literally costs less to operate. Um, you know, there's less operations to do overall. You don't need dedicated people to be doing operations necessarily at a small scale. Um, it's also a really great way of building small applications that don't you know, that don't yet require a lot of scale, but then also scale up when needed very easily. Um, I do a lot of mentoring with um, small startups at various um, accelerators, um, and I see a massive trend towards the adoption of serverless within these um, startup accelerators. And, and it's not that they're selling the idea that they're, you know, a serverless startup or that they're doing serverless. Like serverless is like, like in, like it's an extra, right? Like it's just a thing that they're doing. They're, they're not selling their investors on it being serverless. They're selling the fact that they're building their product and that their product is good and they're using serverless to accelerate that effort so they can deliver in a shorter amount of time with less money. Um, I also think that if you do go to, um, you know, if you are raising venture capital and you're not building serverless, um, and you're doing all of those things that Jeremy just described that takes you all that extra time, you know, you will not get the, I don't think you're going to get the money to build out large infrastructure projects that are not serverless right now very easily. I think it's a lot easier to get a smaller amount of money and do more with it doing it serverless than to get a lot of money so you can build, you know, a traditional, you know, uh, you know, circa 2005, you know, uh, you know, architecture. Um, or even a 2011 architecture. I, I think that, you know, if you're going into 2020 and you're not building serverless um, with your startup, you're, you know, unnecessarily wasting time and money. Totally agree. Yeah. And the other thing I'll add to that too is um, customers, by the way, uh, you know, you can ask them if they care that you're running a serverless architecture or something like that and your customers um your customers will not care uh and and i think i think eric makes a great point about investors too it, it I, if i was mentoring a company i you know that, that was saying yeah we want to build out this whole infrastructure thing or something i'd say you're crazy uh because it just it seems insane to me that you have the ability to rapidly innovate to create something that you can get out there immediately um, and just start testing. I mean, think about the, the simplest thing is the worst example I know, but a to-do app. Let's say you have a great idea for a new to-do app. That's one Lambda function, one DynamoDB table, API gateway, and S3, and maybe Vue or React or whatever. Um, and that application that you can likely build in an afternoon would be globally distributed, scalable to billions of users likely, um, and it could prove out something very, very simple um, you know, for you, for you to do. Um, so reinventing the wheel with infrastructure is crazy enough. Um, or, you know, reinventing the wheel for services is kind of crazy, I think at this point, but reinventing the wheel for, uh, for infrastructure is just, is, is beyond crazy. Yeah. Stick to your core competencies and your core competencies should not be infrastructure with exceptions, right? <laughs> That is true. That is true. There are certain things. Yes. I mean, I, I think there are, there are, uh, you know, the, the, the funny thing too, is that if you think about the differentiation now between a lot of companies, everybody's adding machine learning and, and, uh, and things like that. And, and, uh, you know, uh, prediction algorithms, things that will, will make it easier for their system to be more interactive with the users, personalization, stuff like that. Um, that's a whole separate discipline, right? And if you're going to start doing that, um, yes, maybe you can use, uh, you know, maybe you can get a, a, a package running or a, a notebook running, whatever, in SageMaker or um, 
uh, something like that. You can get an algorithm running that will help you do some things where you can use, I think it's AWS Personalize or whatever their new one is there that, that helps you do some of that uh, personalization stuff. Um, I think those are all great things that you could kind of add in and you could use to immediately test. But if you have some really interesting machine learning project that you want to go down the road on, right, then hire engineers to do that, like something that would be really, really interesting and, and uh, differentiate you from your competitors, uh, as opposed to just having, you know, five or six people work on keeping your MongoDB or your Cassandra ring up and running. Awesome. Um, well, I think we've got quite a thorough answer to that. Sorry, Rand, did you want to add something on the end there? No, just uh, the last sentence of Jeremy. It's like uh, completely true. <laughs> I agree. Um, we had one question coming through the Q&A from Craig. Um, so saying, uh, can you share a recent great thing? So an idea, a concept, a tool, or a feature you learned in the serverless, uh, in the world of serverless that took you by surprise. So something recent that you found in serverless, be an idea, a concept, a tool, or a feature that took you by surprise? I had something completely bizarre. I think I heard it uh, on Serverless Days Milan. Jeremy, you've been there as well. I think it was the co-founder of uh, Apex. It, somebody asked him to do the most weird thing on Lambda functions, and he just coded Game Boy emulator on Lambda function live on web so you can play Pokemon like that runs on top of Lambda function. This is super bizarre, but it was like, you can probably do anything today uh, if you know a bit of hacking and uh, to run it on like a serverless. So that was just cool. I'll try to find out the, the link for that, but uh, yeah. Yeah, for me, I think that this was a while ago, but um, a very, very interesting thing about the way AWS Lambda handles retries uh, is that uh, I used to think, you know, I knew about the two retries. So if something fails, it will, it'll retry it up to two times and then it will put it into a dead letter queue if you have that set up. Um, but I had not realized a while back that there's a throttling component in there as well. So if, you're, if you have multiple asynchronous invocations to a Lambda function, there's actually a queue in front of that that will queue those and try to execute them against the Lambda. If the Lambda fails, it does its normal uh, two retries. But if the Lambda is throttled because you've got a concurrency limit set, um, then anything that can't be processed won't fail. Instead, it will be buffered for six hours and will continuously be retried until the concurrency is available. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of sort of leading practices say put an SQS queue in front of a Lambda function if you need to buffer events to minimize downstream um, concurrency, you know, to reduce pressure on downstream services. Um, I think that's a great idea. If you have something though that you think is temporary, like maybe it, maybe you've set concurrency because um, you're interacting with another service that is, uh, you know, on AWS or whatever, and you're not super worried about a, you know, a, a seven or 14 day buffering period. Um, this kind of interesting that it does that. So if you have occasional throttles uh, with asynchronous invocations, those will in fact get retried and uh, eventually go through as long as that service isn't down for more than six hours. So that, that's interesting. Um, yeah, and I definitely, I just, just to add on to that, uh, Jeremy, um, I've definitely had to do some sorts of things in that, uh, related to that, um, when doing operations, uh, there was, um, an outage in one of, or several of the regions recently for, oh gosh, what was it? Was it SQS that went out? Uh, so, so, some, so something went down, one of the AWS services, um, like, globally <laughs> um, and but it wasn't lambda but it was affecting our lambdas because it was like our event source and it, it may have been SQS uh, yeah, I think well, when route 53 was hit with that denial of service there the other day there yeah. was um, uh, s3 if you were using the the public names for s3 buckets then it wasn't then the DNS wasn't working correctly so there were failures there definitely yeah that, that, that wasn't it but whatever it was um, we realized that when the oh I know what it was cloudwatch events cloudwatch events um, stopped triggering the cron jobs for like 12 hours or something like like ridiculous and so what we did was we replaced we, we replaced it with a server. We actually replaced CloudWatch events with a server that evoked our lambdas um, off a of cron, and we disabled the trigger. Um, and we were really careful because we were afraid that if the service came back up and it went, like basically had scheduled things to happen, if they all just ended up happening all at once. So we ended up 
um, turning off the trigger, running a server to do the cron job, um, and then waited for the service to come back and make sure that there was nothing else like in the queue incorrectly before then turning off our server and turning back on CloudWatch events just because CloudWatch events, um, you know, Cloud Cron had basically died. Um, but the thing that I think that was more surprising to me, and this is, um, it shouldn't have been a surprise, it was more of, I guess I had watched a, um, a presentation at some point about um, when API Gateway's first released webhooks, I'm uh, sorry, um, WebSockets, I had a completely different idea of how they operate it than how they actually operate. So um, I started playing with it recently, um, and I guess two things were kind of mildly surprising. One was that it was just different than I thought it was, um, which maybe I shouldn't be so surprised by. Um, and then also was just how other people use it, because, um, you know, the way I started using it and had other people, like, it was just very different than how apparently other people use webhooks or web sockets because um, I was looking at having like we have an ingestion pipeline data comes in and you know, data flows into us and I wanted to asynchronously push that back that data back to users um, you know there was like you know most of the web socket documentation focuses around how do you handle like create lambda handlers for receiving messages and I'm like, I don't need any of these. Like, I don't need a connect route. I don't need a disconnect route. I don't need a, you know, receive message route. I didn't need, I literally didn't need any of these things. Um, it was just kind of surprising that the documentation um, pointed users at this very, you know, um, session-based way of using uh, WebSockets rather than, um, you know, kind of a data pipeline, you know, because we just use the, um, uh, there is a callback URL, and we just use the callback URL. We don't use any of the routes. So it's just kind of, maybe I shouldn't be shocked, but I it just, the way other people develop things and build things is always interesting to me. <laughs> and I guess uh, one final one from me on a recent thing that I found interesting, sort of in the serverless world, I was at the GoTo conference in Berlin at the weekend with my company, and uh, D-Wave Systems were giving a talk, so they're a quantum computing company and they were giving some tutorials about how you can send a problem to their server and it will run them uh, in a quantum environment. Now, I'm not an expert on quantum computing, but it was very interesting. But the way he was interacting with the server was completely serverless. He was writing some code, he was then running a command which shipped the code and it was then run, abstracted away from him. And their whole sort of positioning is about sort of hybrid quantum traditional computing. So quantum computing obviously isn't quite there yet. So there are some things you can kind of do, but how do you fit that into a traditional um, computer system? And it was kind of in a serverless way, sort of having this code that you send and it's abstracted away how it's run and it sends back the results. So I'm kind of keen to see if we ever get a quantum plug into the serverless framework in a few years. Yeah, it was a very interesting talk. Yeah, I, something I would really love to see from somebody would be, you know, like an official API for asynchronous invocations, like, you know, do something like, open a WebSocket, um, you know, trigger a Lambda over the WebSocket and then get back the response asynchronously. Um, it, it's kind of an, an interesting model that like, right now you have to build all that yourself, um, it, it seems. I, I, I guess technically the API Gateway does do some of that. It's just, it, it seems like we could do a lot more to power asynchronous applications on top of Lambda. It's a super powerful platform for it. But I think that, um, there's a certain skill to building those applications today that doesn't necessarily need to be there. I, I think that we could reduce the complexity of building async apps. Yeah, Tim Wagner. Tim Wagner's uh, new project that he's working on is interesting. It's doing uh, NAT punching in order to have Lambda functions actually communicating, uh, I think, over TCP with one another. So once they establish the connection, they can all coordinate and talk to one another um, synchronously, actually in real time. So I don't know. There's there's a lot of interesting a lot of interesting things that are happening. Um, serverless, as we know it today, is going to look a lot different in two years or three years and five years. It's going to be it's going to be completely different. I think we might also abandon the term serverless to something more uh, meaningful. Yes, hopefully. <laughs> well, I don't think we could end on a better sort of phrase. So uh, we've just run out of time there. So just thank you, Jeremy, Ran, and Erica for your time today. Um, yeah, it's been really great to have you guys discussing the future of serverless, and I hope to have you back on the panel again soon. Is there anything you guys 
wanted to say that you might have missed or uh, are we good? Just Thank go you. serverless. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. <laughs> yes, well, thanks, Ben. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to this Serverless Transformation podcast, a podcast about all things serverless. If you're interested in hearing more content, please follow me on Twitter at LRBben. That's at E-L-L-E-R-B-Y-B-E-N. Follow us on Medium, medium.com slash serverless-transformation. And keep up to date with our GitHub. That's github.com slash theodo-uk. This podcast is brought to you by Theodo, a development company in London passionate about open source technologies like serverless and delivering MVPs quickly. If you're interested in anything we can help you with, please go to www.theodo.co.uk. Thanks for listening and I hope to see you next time.